You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late-night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Tenderfoot TV, or their employees. This podcast also contains subject matter, which may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. It's October 2022. While walking down the street, I received a text message about some breaking news. The Belgian Minister of Justice has just announced DNA comparisons with the DeTrue file. But this request isn't about any of the victims that we've been discussing. It's for a different case. The 1993 disappearance of a Dutch college student. Au Pays-Bas, la police et la justice enquêtent sur une autre disparition. Heeft Mark de Troo met de Nederlandse studente Tania Groen nog een slachtoffer van de woningen van Mark de Troo uitgestald? 18-year-old Tania Groen disappeared during introduction week at Maastricht University in Holland, close to the Belgian border. Is Mark Dutroux implicated in the disappearance of a Dutch student in 1993? The Dutch authorities are studying this question very seriously. The young woman, Tanya Groen, disappeared in Maastricht, close to the Belgian border, in 1993. Dutch authorities are requesting evidence from Belgian authorities related to this affair. Her case has gone unsolved for nearly 30 years but it bears striking similarities to some of Dutroux's victims. Could this renewed interest in DNA from the Dutroux affair open the door to more victims and more accomplices? A psychopath is somebody who understands emotions. And I told them it is very exceptional that somebody abducts two children at the same time. Should have been the end of it in 1986. But my God, it was just the beginning. I think Belgium was a paradise for perverts in those days. Welcome to Le Monstre. I'm your host, Matt Graves. The announcement of DNA testing in the Dutroux case came at the request of authorities in Holland where Tanya Groen disappeared. They requested DNA profiles obtained from Mark Dutroux's houses and vehicles. It's a fortuitous development, as I've been working on the DNA aspects of the Dutroux affair for over a year now. 
I'm hopeful that this might help shake up the otherwise dormant case file. Tanya disappeared just three miles from the Belgian border. It was a warm summer night on the evening of August 31st, 1993, when 18-year-old Tanya Grun attended a student association party in the center of Maastricht. It was her first year of university, and Tanya just moved into her new room in the nearby suburb of Gronsveld. She spoke with her mother at around 7.30 that evening before riding her bike to the party, and everything seemed normal. Fellow students who attended the party reported that nothing seemed out of the ordinary when she left by bike at around midnight, presumably to ride back to her room in Gronsveld, about five miles away. Tanya was approximately five foot seven, with long, dark, shoulder-length hair, and was last seen wearing blue jeans. Her housemates were concerned when she never showed up the next day. But it wasn't until she didn't show up at her parents' house in the north of Holland as planned the following day that they became alarmed. The disappearance was particularly mysterious as it seemed as if she simply vanished without a trace. There was no sign of Tanya or her bike and no clues whatsoever as to what may have happened. This case has stumped investigators for decades and her parents have never stopped working to find out what happened to their daughter. In 2021, their efforts got a boost when the award-winning Dutch investigative journalist Peter de Vries launched a crowd-funded initiative called the Golden Tip Foundation to collect money as a reward for tips leading to the discovery of what happened to Tanya. In a cruel twist of fate, Peter de Vries was brutally murdered in broad daylight in the center of Amsterdam on July 6, 2021, just after walking out of a television studio. I was working on this podcast at the time, and it really shocked me, and the entire world for that matter. To see a highly respected journalist gunned down in the capital city of a modern Western democracy. He was a courageous man who took on many dangerous stories, including the notorious drug gangs operating in Holland. It's not believed that his murder had anything to do with the investigation into Tanya's disappearance. His foundation raised over a million euros to investigate the Tanya Grun case. Given the proximity of the disappearance to Belgium and the circumstances of a young woman and her bike vanishing into thin air has led the cold case team in Holland to investigate the possibility that Dutroux may have been involved in some way. Els Schuurs who you heard from in episode two, is the partner of Jean Lambrex, the father of Effie Lambrex, who was abducted and murdered by Dutroux and his accomplices in 1995. I spoke to Els about Tanya's case. Uh, the Dutch authorities thought that maybe there might be a link to the Dutroux case, as at the time of Tanya's disappearance, Dutroux was first of all not in prison. He was very active, he was very much driving around Europe. He went to Amsterdam. He went to Maastricht, that we know for sure. He went to Berlin. So um, that comes with the element that Tanya was riding her bike. The bike disappeared as well. So it's exactly the same thing that happened with uh, Sabine Dardenne. 
she was abducted and her bike vanished as well, together with her. Also, uh, during the, the years uh, Dutou committed uh, a similar crime, he abducted a girl that was riding a bike. Also, he took the bike with the girl. Remember that way back in 1985, during his first wave of kidnappings and rapes, Dutroux and other accomplices bundled a girl and her bike into their van while she was riding down the street. The abduction of Sabine Dardenne 10 years later in 1995 had the exact same M.O. Um, these are things that are known. And the Dutch detectives that are working on the case thought that maybe it was worth looking into the Dutou case in order to find out whether he might be implied in this crime. Apart from that, in the Dutou case, and that is also uh, something that is known, there are a lot of DNA profiles, there are hairs, so in other words, biological traces that have not been uh, awarded to some, to one of the victims or to one of the perpetrators. In other words, these DNA profiles, these hairs belong to unknown persons. Now, the Dutch authorities, if I understand correctly, want to compare Tanya's profile with the unknown profiles found in the Dutroux case. The DNA in the Dutroux case is a labyrinth that I've spent much time trying to understand. It's important to remember that when Dutroux was arrested in 1996, DNA testing and analysis was far less sophisticated than today. There was a lot of evidence collected and analyzed back in the late 90s and early 2000s. Elsa and I did a lot of digging through the original case file to track down the profiles that were established. So in the Dutou case, there is a police report stating the fact that 26 unknown DNA profiles were established. So in other words, 26 people left traces either in cars belonging to Dutou or in his house, uh, going from, from the basement of his house to the attic. Um up till today, up until today, uh, it has not been possible to match these unknown profiles to either victims, victims we don't know about, or even perpetrators we don't know about. About a year ago, I reached out to an independent forensic DNA expert in the United States named Dr. Richard Eichelenboom to see if he could help me make sense of what we found. Dr. Eichelenboom's company, Independent Forensic Services, specializes in bloodstain pattern analysis, touch traces, and forensic pathology. His work has led to resolution in a number of cases, including the wrongful conviction of Tim Masters and that of former Indiana State Trooper David Cam, where Dr. Eichelenboom found touch DNA of the killer leading to David Cam's exoneration and the conviction of another man. He's also worked extensively on other high-profile cases, including Jean-Benet Ramsey, and Aaron Hernandez. One of the reasons that I wanted to elicit his help is that he's actually from Europe and spent 12 years as a forensic scientist at the Netherlands Forensic Institute. So he brings an interesting mix of cutting edge US-based techniques with deep experience in Europe. With permission of the Lombrex family, I shared the DNA information that we could find in the case file. So I uh, look, looked at the uh, reports and information. Uh, you sent me the pictures. And um, yeah, in, in order to come to, uh, to better conclusions, uh, we need the raw data. 
So this is the da real data extracted by computers. And what's in here, these are just DNA reports. So this doesn't give me enough information about the DNA profiles obtained. I missed the raw data. So what I had, the DNA profiles, yeah, you, you have them in, a, in an Excel file or whatever it is, but uh, it's a table. And what we look at is the peak profiles. From the outset, it was difficult to have a clear view of what we have and what we don't have. After our first meeting with Dr. Eichelenboom, Jean Lombrex sent a letter to the general prosecutor of Liège requesting information about the profiles. We, we basically asked, we sent two letters. Uh, the first letter was about the DNA profiles, and we wanted to know whether they were still available to be checked. And the answer we received to that letter was clearly not the answer, the exact answer to the question. Uh, we got a message saying that the DNA profiles were introduced in um, databases. The thing is, we don't know in which databases they were introduced. It's so frustrating that the family of a victim can't seem to get a straight answer to a simple question. From what we could deduce from the information included in the case file, there are multiple unidentified profiles that were established based on DNA collected from Dutroux's house and vehicles. There is, for instance, a profile of an unknown person called unknown number two. This trace was found inside of the dungeon uh, on the wall, the left wall. But the problem is that it is with the DNA of Julie Lejeune. And that's what makes it very suspicious and that what troubles us. This unknown profile mixed with the blood of victim Julie Lejeune found on the wall of the dungeon is extremely suspicious. Again, Dr. Richard Eichelenboom. As I understood, there's at least one unknown person present in a bloodstain of one of the victims. And of course, that's always important. If you have a donor in blood of the victim, that can be a very incriminating piece of evidence. and. If you look at the sex part of this uh, DNA table, it says XY. That means that's a male. So they have an unknown male in this case. But you can also see that they are missing information. So DNA parts of this person dropped out during DNA profiling. And if you put that in the database, you get, a, you get no matches because you didn't exactly put in the right profile. So the more information you gain from such a profile, uh, the better. So if you use a more sensitive kit, then... It's possible that certain amounts of the DNA which was, were dropped out of this unknown donor would come up. And then you, are, you know, okay, this profile is a little bit different than, than what we thought. And that happened a lot with cases out of 2000s. If you redo them, you gain more information, you get a better view on this real person. And since uh, all the victims in this case were female, young girls, you could filter those out if you start doing white chromosomal DNA testing, which is only present in male subjects. So then you get a very good look at the amount of donors, male donors in a sample, for instance. One of the problems with the John Bonnet Ramsey case was that you had complex DNA mixtures with a lot of DNA of the victim, and then likely two other donors, which could be both male, which could also be male and female, or maybe the mother. So if you filter the female DNA out of that with white chromosome DNA testing, because that cannot detect female DNA, then you left with the male donors. And that gives you a lot of information about the case. So forensically, we use that Y-chromosomal DNA testing a lot. Else explains further about the unknown DNA profiles. Um, 
Then we have an unknown profile called number three. It's a profile that was found on a piece of, of, of a pyjama, something, a piece of cloth that was found in the attic of the house of Dutroux and Marcinelle. Um, it has blood stains on it. It has hairs on it. Uh, so on this piece of cloth, um, a trace is found, and it, it's determined that it is uh, it comes from a female human being. But this trace uh, found in the attic uh, has so far not been matched to anyone. This unknown female blood found on pajamas could certainly be an unidentified victim. All profiles were tested against the victims, Michel Martin and Dutroux's children. So it didn't come from any of them. So apart from the DNA uh, profiles that have been established, there are also a lot of hairs found. Hairs that were found in cars, also in the house, uh, in, in several places. These hairs are still available today, but at the time they have been uh, briefly investigated, but still not matched to any of the victims, to any of the perpetrators. And the king's prosecutor, what did this well, this line of inquiry uh, cleared, but, uh, well, obviously the investigating magistrate didn't want to do it, and he, uh, he was forced in the end. He was forced by the Court of Appeals of Liège uh, back in 2001. Anyway, um, the result is still, there is still no result today. I asked Dr. Eichelenboom for his thoughts about who the DNA profiles could belong to could be, or it's even very likely, that the perpetrators left some of their hairs there. So in that sense, given that it's much easier and also much cheaper to do DNA profiling now, it could be useful to, uh, to look at those hairs and, and, and start testing those. Yeah, I would certainly want to know who was the person who donated his DNA or her DNA inside the blood center of one of the victims. That's incriminating evidence. Go over all the forensic evidence which is still there and then review a number of samples already taken. Uh, but also you could review uh, evidence itself if it's still there and see if you can get better results out of that with the new DNA kits. And then using a combination of sensitive new autosomal DNA kits, the standard kits, and but also white chromosomal DNA so that you have a much better view of this male donors in these samples. Else and Jean Lombrex sent a second letter to the Prosecutor General in August to ask if the evidence collected in the case still exists. They haven't yet received an answer to this letter, but I'm hopeful that the evidence still exists and that it could be retested. Not only could it potentially help to find out more about other missing persons from the time, like Tanya Grun, but it might also turn up new suspects who were never brought to justice. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. 
Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? Yeah. This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There are many loose ends in the Detroux affair that have troubled victims' families for years. Some of them, like DNA testing, are out of our hands. But following leads and tracking people down are loose ends that we may be able to tie up. Over the past several months, I've made progress on that front. You'll remember that throughout this podcast, starting with episode two, I talked about an establishment called the Hotel Brazil in the seaside town of Blankenberg, where Anne Marshall and Effie Lambrex attended a hypnosis show shortly before disappearing. More than one witness claimed to have seen Anne and Effie after the hypnosis show, either in front of the Hotel Brazil or nearby on the same street. The owner of this hotel and bar had been charged with engaging in prostitution and human trafficking. And a friend of the hotel and bar owner, who was also an acquaintance of Mark Detrue, was staying at the Hotel Brazil when Anne and Effie went missing. I spoke about this with the investigative journalist Douglas DeConnick, who actually interviewed the witness who claimed to have seen Anne and Effie in front of this hotel. I recorded this while driving with Douglas, so there's a bit of background noise. Um, I think it was Paul Marshall, the father of uh, Anne. He just spoke about something in Blankenberger with a butcher named Erik van Damme. And uh, so I went to Blankenberger, knocked on his door, he opened and he started telling me his incredible story. For Paul Marshall, which is very important, um, his daughter and Evje, they, um, they went to uh, a show in Blankenberg in the casino. Um, they had to take the last tram to, to the place they stayed. But uh, after the show, they have been in Blankenberger for about an hour. And what this butcher said was, explained was that he was in uh, trouble with his neighbor. His neighbor was um, a kind of prostitute bar named Hotel Brazil. And what the butcher told me was that um, it was coming and going in that, that hotel of clients, uh, women of which you could divine that they were prostitutes. Uh, but he said that evening, a uh, few days after the disappearance of Anne and Effie, I saw the pictures in the paper. And I immediately remembered that um, 
those were the two girls I saw going into that hotel that evening. I think it's, yeah, in, in, in a context of neighbors having uh, fights, you also always should be very careful about, about this kind of testimony. So later on, I discovered that on the day of the arrest of Mark Dutroux, police searched his house and close to the phone, they found a note with the phone number. It was the phone number of the hotel president. This is an important piece of information that Douglas just shared. On the day of the arrest of Mark Dutroux, police searched his house and close to the phone, they found a note with the phone number. It was the phone number of the hotel president. When Dutroux was arrested, police found a piece of paper near his phone at the house in Marcinelle where the girls were held captive. On this piece of paper was the name and telephone number of the Hotel Brazil. These aren't the only coincidences that make this whole Hotel Brazil connection suspicious. I mentioned that Dutroux had an acquaintance that was staying at the Hotel Brazil during the summer when Anne and Effia disappeared. That acquaintance, who was also a friend of the Hotel Brazil owner, drove a car with a license plate that's almost an exact match to a license plate identified by a witness in Grassalonia under the bridge where Julie and Melissa disappeared. The car was a red Ford Fiesta. I interviewed ex-gendarme Jean-Pierre Radon, who worked with a special unit that was formed just after Dutroux's arrest and investigated the red car lead at the behest of the King's prosecutor, Michel Bourlet. The prosecutor Bourlet came into my office one day and he asked me to look into finding information about a red Ford Fiesta that could have been used for the abduction of Julie and Melissa. I started to look into it and, indeed, indeed, there were several testimonies about a little red car or a red Ford Fiesta seen near the bridge where Julie and Melissa were abducted. And then I stumbled upon something. And I can tell you, it's, it's a catastrophe. I stumbled upon a letter from, from a doctor, the Dr. Arouar. Shortly after the abduction of Julie and Melissa, he sent a letter to the investigation unit in Grassologne, where he explained that on the day of the abduction, he noticed something that seemed out of place. There was a van and a red car on the side of the highway, very close to where the girls had disappeared. And he remembered the first three letters of the license plate, NKV, and then he couldn't remember the rest. And he sent this letter to the investigation unit, and I don't know who processed it, but they marked it as non-exploitable. Non-exploitable, I'm sorry, but if someone had taken the time to read the Othello report with the names that were in there, there was a certain Niccolo Mazzara who was cited in the Othello report as an accomplice of Dutroux. The Othello report that he's referring to is the report on the Operation Othello, the secret surveillance operation of Dutroux that started shortly after Julie and Melissa disappeared. The name he mentions, Niccolo Mazara, was not only an accomplice of Dutroux, but he was also a friend of the Hotel Brazil owner. The red car with the license plate starting with NKV was recorded in the Othello report because it had been observed visiting Dutroux's house in Charleroi. 
If someone had taken the time to look at the cars attributed to Mazarin and his wife, they would have found the NKV 947. And that license plate was at one of Dutroux's properties on a car that was put up for sale. And, and no one made the connection at the time. Even a rookie cop would have found this. But they didn't. And I'm convinced that if someone would have looked at this, they could have found Julie and Melissa alive. They were alive at that time. I asked Jean-Pierre Radon if they'd ever interviewed the doctor who wrote the letter. They never did. I requested permission to interview him. I made requests and requests and requests, and I was told yes, but I never got the authorization because I needed a judge's authorization, but never got it. The witness is dead now, the poor guy. They sabotaged the lead about the Red Fiesta, and they sabotaged others afterwards. Even without interviewing the doctor, had authorities followed the evidence, they would have found a clear connection between Dutroux, Mazara, the NKV license plate, and the Red Ford Fiesta. You'll recall that the owner of the Hotel Brazil was questioned by police after Dutroux was arrested. Else explained this in episode two. So eventually, this bar owner, he was questioned by the police. Um, he was questioned the first time on the 1st of October, 1996. And then one time more, a second time on the 16th of October. But after that, he actually vanished from the earth. So. He left. He left Blankenberg. He announced to the local authorities that he would go to Germany, but in Germany there was no trace of him left. Both Dutroux and Le Lièvre later admitted to abducting Anne and Effie at the Belgian seaside. The question here is whether or not they were helped in some way. I believe this man from the Hotel Brazil could shed light on this question. He may not have been involved in any way, or perhaps his friend, Mazaha, with the Red Ford Fiesta was involved. Unfortunately, Mazaha has since passed away. So I set out to try to find the Hotel Brazil owner, who I'll refrain from naming, because I don't want to falsely implicate anyone for something as abhorrent as being involved with the abuse and murder of children. He certainly isn't a saint, but his other dodgy affairs are of no concern to us here. Our last tip was that he lived in Brazil, so that's where we started. I was able to find a local journalist named Fernanda to help try to locate him for an interview. I checked the public databases and there is no trace of him in the system here, as far as I can tell you. We've decided not to share Fernanda's full name or exact location, as snooping around the world of international organized crime is dangerous business. I drove by the address we discussed it last time, and it's definitely not a residence. It's like a pharmacy. After a lot of searching and even a drive-by at a place where we thought he might be, we were getting nowhere. So I asked her to switch her focus to searching for a woman who spent time at the Hotel Brazil in Belgium before fleeing back to Brazil. You'll recall in episode two that I spoke with a man who described an incident involving a Brazilian woman at the Hotel Brazil. My father came in conflict uh, with uh, this uh, person because he found outside the front door of his house, he found a, a young woman, a Brazilian woman, crying and who had been beaten. And my father took the woman inside and it turned out that this woman had been fetched from Brazil 
And uh, she had been brought to Belgium with the expectation that she, she would have work, but in reality, it was meant for prostitution. And Mr. had taken uh, all documents, passport, so that he controlled this woman. My father then contacted the police, and the police went inside the house, found another woman, and also found weapons. Our goal was to try to find this woman and hopefully have her lead us to the Hotel Brazil owner. After six months of searching, we believe we actually found this woman, thanks to the dogged work of Fernanda. It was really hard to find her, because her name here in Brazil is so, so common that made my researchers almost impossible. I did locate a boy who seems like being her son, because the name was exactly the same. So I decided to go to Facebook and Instagram to find this boy and to try to, to discover if the woman we were looking for was his mother. Fernando was able to contact him and confirm that he was indeed the son of the woman we were looking for. He verified his mother's name and that she'd spent time in Belgium in the mid-90s. And then the most important question I asked him was, can you give me your mother's cell phone? And he was like, okay, I can give you. So I was like, oh my God, so many months in this search for this, so easy. This is the voice of the victim Fernanda located. We'll withhold her name and location as she was initially afraid to speak about this, and I want to respect her privacy. Fernanda explains what she learned through their many exchanges. So when she arrived in Belgium, she was thinking that she was going to work as a nanny, because that was the promise. But once she arrived, she was talking to a hotel. So she started to live there in the hotel and work there in a hotel. But one day, um, also in this hotel, asked her to sleep with her and her husband. And she thought that maybe it's something wrong there because I am here to work as an any, but I am in a hotel. And right now, this crazy couple are asking me to sleep with day. And so she, she thought that something strange there. And later, other strange situations happened, such as saved her to keep in Belgium he had to marry with a Belgian and she didn't want to to get married with anybody but she agreed to meet the the, the guy and but she doesn't remember unfortunately how he's looked like and his name but after all that situation she decided to get back home to get back to Brazil and did not allow it her to get back. So they took it, her passport. They forbidden her to have contact with phones. At this time, at, at this point, she started to find really strange. And one day she could have uh, access to a phone and she called to a place there in Belgium that she doesn't remember the name to ask for help. And saw her asking for help and just say to her that he was going to kill her and he was going to throw her down the stairs 
and he grabbed her arms and really hurted her. She was really, really afraid of him. And she wanted to get out of there as quickly as possible. The fact that this woman was originally afraid to speak and wishes to remain anonymous after 25 years speaks volumes about this man's reputation. Fernanda shared a picture of Mark Dutroux with her, and she said that she'd never seen him, nor did she ever see children at the Hotel Brazil. It could all truly be a coincidence. But to find out, I need to speak with the owner of the Hotel Brazil to hear his side of the story. He didn't seem to be in Brazil, so I refocused my search on Germany. This man's name and location will remain confidential given the nature of his work, but I have a lot of confidence in his ability to find people. He explained to me that the man we're looking for isn't in the system in Germany and that he'd have to mobilize other sources to find him and that it wouldn't be easy. I kept searching myself in vain and was about to give up when I got a text to call back my contact. He doesn't speak English, and my German isn't all that great, but we managed. He explained that he had indeed found something, and according to his info, he could give me an address, which I bleeped out here. He said he couldn't promise the man was there, but that he was pretty sure he'd located him. It would be a scoop if I could actually locate this man. The parents of Anne and Effia the King's prosecutor, Michel Bourlet, and several journalists have wanted to question him for over 25 years. Although my chances of actually speaking with him were low, I felt I had to give it a try. The investigative journalist, Douglas DeConnick, originally broke the story about the Hotel Brazil. So I invited him to join me on a trip to Germany to find this mysterious man. Okay, they've got a lot of car noise here, so I'm gonna... He jumped at the occasion and we found ourselves cruising down the Autobahn towards a destination that will remain unnamed. So, summary of this guy is that he was a sergeant in the army. He was certainly involved in being a pimp. Had a hotel, got accused of human trafficking, uh, was arrested, was convicted of arms imports, I believe, importing an illegal arm. And um, there's another point, and that's the red car that was seen in Gasolonia with yeah. the license plate that starts with NKV. And that this license plate is the same first three letters as the license plate that Mazara was using at that time. The red car is interesting because um, a few hours before the kidnapping of Julia Melissa, there's another, um, someone else, tries to kidnap two girls in Ubile yeah. with a red car. Yeah. With a description that doesn't fit, seem to fit Mark Dutroux. Douglas is talking about the other attempted kidnapping of two girls nearby on the same day Julie and Melissa were abducted. In this case, the mother got a good look at a man driving a red car, but her description doesn't really match that of Mark Dutroux. Dutroux has always insisted, and still insists today, that he did not carry out the actual kidnapping of Julie and Melissa, but that they were brought to him. The parents of Julie and Melissa still to this day do not know how their girls were taken or who actually abducted them. So, I don't think, you know, I don't think 
he's going to threaten us with violence or anything. Um, but be ready in case he does, because he's a guy who has guns. We know that. And he has a history of attacking people physically, apparently, as well. So. Oh, great. Does he have uh, dangerous dogs? Probably. That's <laughs> where... <laughs> That's where I run away as fast as I can. You've heard a lot of information about the Hotel Brazil connection. So let me remind you in the simplest of terms of why this hotel owner may have the answers that we've been seeking and why I need to speak with him. First, when Ann and Ifya disappeared, they were seen in front of his hotel that night. Second, he had an indirect connection with Mark Dutroux because his friend who stayed at his hotel that summer was also an acquaintance of Dutroux's. This friend's license plate can possibly be tied back to the disappearance of Julie and Melissa, therefore potentially linking the two separate abductions. Third, you'll recall that when they arrested Dutroux, they found the Hotel Brazil owner's name and number written on a piece of paper next to the phone. And finally, after being questioned by police, he disappeared and has never been seen since drove all day long to surprise this guy. He's probably not home. Yeah. If that's the case, we're gonna go get a beer somewhere. Which we're gonna do anyway. Which we're gonna do anyway. <laughs> exactly. After a long day of driving, we went straight to the address we had and decided to try and make contact right away without any warning. I'm just gonna do a last check to make sure this thing's actually recording. And it says it is. How does my recorder look? Does it is, it, is it popping out too much? It was a relatively quiet neighborhood on a beautiful spring day. And as luck would have it, he was standing outside in front of his house as we made our way up the driveway. Hi. Hello. My name is Matt Graves, and I am looking for you, I believe. When I greeted him in English, he answered in French, saying that he didn't understand what I was saying. When I switched to French, we immediately noticed his expression turned dark and that he knew exactly why we were there. He said, okay, get out of here. This is private property. Je sais que vous êtes, je voulais juste vous demander des questions vis-à-vis votre ancien ami. I told him we wanted to ask him questions about his old friend Mazara, and he kept repeating au revoir or goodbye. And he said, am I clear? This is private property. Get out of here. No. I explained that we drove a long ways to ask him questions and that we didn't want to accuse him of anything. We just wanted to hear his side of the story. He kept repeating goodbye and get out of here. So I asked why he didn't want to talk to us. The more I insisted, the more angry he became. He ducked inside of his front door for a few seconds, and I have to admit, I was concerned he might come back out with a weapon. Why not? 
Non, mais je voulais juste Allô vous expliquer. Ça m'intéresse pas. Je te le dis une dernière fois. Maintenant, vous sortez d'ici. He yelled loudly that he wasn't interested and said, I'm going to tell you one last time. Get out of here. On peut pas se parler dans la rue? Hey, dans la rue? J'ai la tête à me rencontrer avec toi dans la rue, moi. Hey, tu me couperas pour un, un idiot ou quoi? I suggested that we could talk in the street. And he said, do I look like a guy who's going to meet you in the street? Do you think I'm an idiot or what? En fait, je crois que les parents... Oui, oui, je m'en fous. C'est toi qui es ici et c'est toi qui parles. Alors, ciao. C'est les parents de Efia qui voulaient vous demander quelque chose. In vain, I made it clear that I was there with questions on the behalf of the parents of Efia. And he said, I don't care, get out of here. I told him I wanted to tell the parents the truth and that I think he knows it. But there was no use in continuing. I'm pretty sure it was about to get violent. So we walked away. Well, that didn't go so well. Let's let's get the fuck out of here before he goes and gets his gun. But I would have rather had yeah, a talk, you know. Too, uh, but it was obvious from the first second that uh, this would end like this. Both Douglas and I were confident that we had just talked face to face with the owner of the Hotel Brazil more than two decades after he disappeared. There was no doubt. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to the European political systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. And looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a house in your neighborhood that doesn't look so different than yours. A family that everyone feels like they know. A home that is well-kept, leaves raked, snow shoveled. Kids playing in a yard on a summer afternoon. Until one day, when their lives are shattered by a killer who comes out of nowhere, or who's been there all along. My name is Matt Marinovich, and for the new season of Murder Homes, I've found homes whose stories are just a little bit darker. We'll talk to a prisoner convicted of first-degree murder. Follow a crime scene cleanup crew to a horrific tragedy. Take a road trip to a bucolic summer camp in upstate New York where a preacher buried the bodies of his adoring disciples and bring you face-to-face -face with one of the most unlikely killers of all. Take a walk with me a little further down the street this time and step inside the home that everyone whispers about to relive a day that will always be frozen in time. You can get 100% ad-free exclusive bonus content, including access to early episodes of Murder Homes, by subscribing to the iHeart True Crime Plus channel today. Available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. Listen to Murder Homes Season 2 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The first thing I did after confirming this man's whereabouts was to send a copy of the recording to the parents of Anne Marshall and Effie Lambrex. 
I got a WhatsApp message straight away from Else. Matt, hi. Oh my God, I have been so curious all day long and I had to wait until three minutes ago to listen to your tape. Um, well, no, not welcoming. And um, as far as I'm concerned, that is personal. It actually proves what we are thinking, that this person is majorly involved in the case. Anyway, um, we can talk about this uh, whenever you want to to discuss how to proceed. I hope you had a pretty good journey to Germany and that anyway you had a, well, a normal day. Bye, Matt. Have a nice weekend. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. I also reached out to the former King's prosecutor, Michel Bourlet. He was very surprised to hear that we actually found the owner of the Hotel Brazil and suggested that if the case ever gets reopened, his DNA profile should be collected and compared with any unknown profiles. The challenge is that this case is officially closed and apparently it will only be reopened if a concrete new element is discovered. But if there's one thing we've learned about the surviving victims, the victims' families, and the citizens of Belgium, it's that they won't simply take no for an answer. Locating the owner of the Hotel Brazil is a good first step. And while it might not be enough to reopen the case, it surely warrants some investigative measures by authorities, like an interview, or as Prosecutor Boulet suggested, a DNA sample. It's my belief that the judicial authorities will never act unless they're forced to. It's up to us to hold them accountable. The recent breaking news about Dutch authorities requesting DNA information from the Detroux file in connection with the Tanya Grun case might provide additional momentum in the argument not only to retest the evidence, but to seek new evidence. While this project may be coming to an end, the work isn't done. I've decided to send all of my findings throughout this investigation, including the whereabouts of the Hotel Brazil owner, with the parents of Julie Lejeune, Melissa Rousseau, Anne Marshall, and Effie Lambrex, so that they can pursue this fight for justice if they so choose. When I started this project, my plan was simply to recount the history of this incredible affair. I never intended to find myself personally tracking down suspects and having strategy meetings with the former King's prosecutor and victims' families, lawyers, and DNA experts. I've become emotionally invested in this affair in a way I didn't anticipate. My family and friends have suggested on more than one occasion that I should take a step back and that I've unnecessarily put myself at risk. But of all the incredible aspects of this affair that we've covered and uncovered, there's one thing that I simply cannot let go. The blood of an eight-year-old girl found on the wall of that awful dungeon in Marcinel mixed with the DNA of an unidentified person. We shouldn't rest until that person is identified and held to account. The name of that eight-year-old girl whose blood was found on that wall is Julie Lejeune. I leave you with a translation of a letter published by her father, Jean-Denis Lejeune, in 2015. To you, my Julie, my dear, it's been 20 years since they ripped you away from me. 20 years that you're no longer here. You'd be 28 and a half today. Maybe you'd be married with children. I still see your face at eight years old, 
and can't imagine what you'd look like today. As I write this, it's a painful day, just like the 7,300 other days until now. I'm still enraged with those responsible for your disappearance and those who cowardly let you die in that dungeon, and also those in whom we had confidence, police, gendarmerie, magistrates. How many times did we hear, trust the professionals? We didn't have a choice. I will never forgive the system. It's not in the normal course of nature to lose a child, and certainly not as you were lost. As I write these lines, I wanted you to know that although you didn't survive, others have because of the fight we led and are still leading today. But at what price? The life of my daughter, my Julie. I love you. The Monstra is a production of Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio. Hosted and executive produced by me, Matt Graves. Produced by Thomas Resimont of Bubble Sound. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on the behalf of Tenderfoot TV with producer Makeup and Vanity Set. Matt Frederick and Alex Williams are executive producers on the behalf of iHeartRadio with producer Trevor Young. Original music by Jay Ragsdale. Sound design by Cooper Skinner and Thomas Resimont. Mixed and mastered by Cooper Skinner. Cover design by Trevor Eiler. La Monstra includes archival audio from Sonuma RTBF archives and CNN archives. Special thanks to Beck Media and Marketing, Station 16, Jeanne Savigna, and the teams at iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. Find us on social media at monster underscore pod. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio or Tenderfoot TV, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated, we're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.